You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. They must go, but the Russian president will not wear his bulletproof vest. There is no persuading him. So the security men go to either side of him, and an aide lays on top of him, in the back of the presidential car. Move! This is only his guest house. He's got maybe eight men. They've got at least 60. They seem to elude the first round of guards, obvious KGB, probably Alpha. But that is not the hard part. The hard part is going through the narrow pass between the dacha and the main highway. On the highway, it would be harder to arrest, to detain. They'd at least make a scene. In the forest, anything could happen. It's dangerous, but no one can tell Boris that. We will go to the Kremlin, he says. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Late night in Sheriprovitz, Russia, August 1991, at this time part of the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic of the USSR. A freight train speeds in the dark towards a megacity, the capital. It is headed for is impressive, even though nearly hidden to people in the West. Moscow, which may mean marshy plain in the language of the ancient Finns. It could also mean dark water. There are 2,000 other cities in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the Soviet Union, or Russia, as it might be common to say on American TV sets, even though there were multiple republics. USSR is impressive on paper, indeed, as I stare at a 1990 National Geographic atlas, a bit tattered. It takes two pages, 11 time zones, 2,000 cities, Petrosovad, Baku, Solinograd, Minsk, Yakutsk. Uzov, Tallinn, Sverdlovsk, cities that would compare to many of the cities in America and to capitals around the globe. Yet everything in the country, as impressive as these other cities are, points to this city, Moscow, 10 millions of people, the capital of the Soyuz. Even Americans and foreigners will lay their heads there tonight as the train rolls forward. They catch traces of lights in the distance, buildings with the big shoulders and pointy spires, the secular cathedral of big government offices. It's a pretty sight. So you think that Stalin ordered their construction to scare people. At least that's what they say. Moscow, everything points to it, as does this train. Because of the events we will discuss in this episode, the tattered 1990 National Geographic Atlas I am holding will suddenly become outdated and meaningless. It'll be a good time to be in the Atlas business. The train arrives. The cargo's loaded into trucks. Normally, it might sit a while before distribution. Few boxes might even disappear, but not these boxes. They come with orders. They're hoisted by Teamsters and get right onto the trucks. The Teamsters work, as all Soviet citizens do in 1991, for the nation, for themselves, for the Soviet Union. So it is written. The boxes are placed, cargo doors shut, and it's not even light out yet. Vroom, the trucks take off past oversized offices of government agencies with long names, past department stores, markets, and hotels. This moving of the trucks, loading of the cargo is one of hundreds of simultaneous activities that are going on today that only a few know about. At daylight, it'll all look very modern. As night falls, it'll light up like a communist Paris with new stores, new restaurants, not quite seen in the rest of the country. 
Moscow, where everyone in the nation thinks they want to be. You can't just live here, after all. You need a special permit, something akin to a passport, to live in Moscow. People try all their lives to get it, and fight like hell to get an apartment here. Some are even happy that they did. In a few hours, millions will be on these streets. They will come out of the metro, off the electrica, from the hotels, not just Moscow's residents, but visitors from all over the Union, which means all over the globe, from Baltic seaports touching Europe, from freezing Arctic norths, from arid deserts, icy fishing coasts where you can see Alaska, Georgian ranchers, Tajiki hunters, Chechens, Moldavian factory workers, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Christians of many sects, nomenclatura, suited up, rusty rubes, Azerbaijanis, Siberians on vacation. But it's too early now for all of that. These trucks pass through largely deserted streets. The subway is closed at midnight. Soviet culture is not a late-night one. There is no clubbing here. Back in the 1980 Olympics, the KGB had to set up fake clubs with fake bars so as not to lose face with international visitors. Also, fake dancers. Some of those agents could really cut a rug. That's the story, anyway. Now, it's quiet. And good, because that's needed for this delivery. No interruptions. The trucks reach their destination. The recipient of these boxes is well known to the world by their acronym, the Committee of Security. And what that means is the KGB. Show their papers, everyone must show their documenti. A clerk inspects them in the boxes, reviews and seals and opens the contents. Maybe he says, All is correct, Tovarish. Maybe he doesn't. The drivers and teamsters depart. All 400 boxes of the 300 are there and accounted for. If it was a different type of delivery, the clerk might score a box for his own or pass it on to friends for favors for blot. But not this. These boxes offer no comfort. They are very strong pieces, very well made, designed to hold, well, designed to hold people, to hold their arms behind their back. Day is breaking soon, and the motherland may have no time for free hands. Now, welcome, and thanks for listening to this series where my history can beat up your politics. This is going to be a series in the Soviet Union's fall. I don't know how many episodes it will be. I never know when I'm recording. I've been working on it for about 10 years in drips and drabs, but most of it this year. Thank you to listener Kevin Willis for encouraging me to finish this one. If you like the show, review us. If you want to talk to me, I'm on at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. We're on Facebook. My history can beat up your politics. I'm on Mastodon now. My history can beat up your politics. Search for us and uh, post in all of those new places. Let's get right down to business. There are many moments that one might think of when they think about the fall of the Soviet Union, and a routine shipment of police equipment is probably not one of them. But for me, for reasons we'll get into, it's very significant to understand it. Mingling with the rush hour traffic, Red Army armored personnel carriers on the streets of Moscow this morning, heading to the Kremlin. But for most, what they remember, especially if they lived in the country at this time, is the music of Swan Lake. Swan Lake, that's right. That's what was on TV screens the morning of August 19th, 1991. It was on Soviet TV. It was on Soviet radio. It was on the ubiquitous squawk boxes, that, the closed-circuit public address systems that seemed to be in every school, factory, government office all broadcasting the same message, and a puzzling one. The President of the Soviet Union, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Mikhail Gorbachev, was ill. More than a few Russian eyebrows were raised. Gorbachev? Healthy young man? Ill? I don't believe it. Was it heart trouble? Something he ate? The message didn't say any of that. Why couldn't he speak? The message didn't say any of that either. On television, the questions were drowned out by a version of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, just as they did when Brezhnev died, just like they did when Andropov died, 
just as they did when Chernenko died. Get up, Cassandra, was what one Moscow journalist said to his wife, Yevgenia Albats, a journalist that focused in particular on the KGB and who is still a journalist now, no longer living in Russia after the war of Ukraine. We'll get into that. He said this because Yevgenia Albats had predicted a coup. This waking up thing was common in accounts of today, August 19, 1991. A morning coup disrupted the sleep of many a Soviet. How can you sleep at a time like this is what another activist in St. Petersburg is awakened to. In faraway Tajikistan, then part of the USSR, another activist is told, wake up, it's a coup, Gorbachev is arrested, and it's all going to hell. Stop kidding me, he says back. He wants to go to sleep. An aide to the Russian president said, There was that cutting silence of early morning and a terrible dissonance, a cloudless blue sky, while some sort of problem was brewing. I wondered if I'd see my wife and kids again. It's finally happened, said Yevgenia Albuts. This was 1964, all over again. Couldn't they come up with something better, though, than Swan Lake? Albats is among those who start thinking, a hiding place. All these years of reporting, all of my sources, my writings, what I've uncovered during the short period of freedom of speech, perestroika, glasnost. Why didn't I come up with a hiding place? The broadcasts went on. An emergency committee is formed, headed up by the vice president. Him? He just got the position. In his initial appointment hearings, there were questions about his health, and he had to insist that he was healthy. Further instructions are forthcoming, and then more Swan Lake. Central TV had already been surrounded by tanks. It was the first action the emergency commit committee took well before daylight. TASS, the Russian National News Service, was informed also with what they had to do. A KGB man appeared at the Democratic news source Echo of Moscow Radio and tells them to stop broadcasting. They won't. But printing presses of the newspapers that are deemed intolerable will be shut down. Many of the reporters still come to the offices with no paper just to be in the central point of news. One Russian paper, Izvestia, finds that they aren't shut down. They are embarrassed. What an insult. I woke up to a loud rumbling outside, Alexander Zemlyanichenko said. The same sound I heard during an earlier showdown between Soviet troops and pro-democracy protesters in Lithuania. He was supposed to go on vacation. Not today. By mid-morning, APCs were ringing the Defense Ministry and most government buildings. Tanks were also positioned outside the Russian Parliament building, Boris Yeltsin's headquarters. It was an unusual sound and an unusual sight. Military vehicles in civilian Moscow. Kutuzovsky Prospect, the avenue where Leonid Brezhnev used to have his apartment, now being occupied by a foreign correspondent, Martin Sixsmith of the BBC, he says he looks out the window and thinks, if the old dictator could have seen the view from his window, he would have applauded a column of tanks rolling towards the Kremlin. Here's Ian Elliott. Suddenly, a dozen tanks rolled past the Metropole Hotel and Sverdlov statue, heading for Manesh Square. Three tanks sped on and passed through the square, but the fourth ground to a halt so abruptly that I thought for a moment it had hit one of the passers-by. It was a relief to realize that it didn't. Nothing more dramatic than an engine failure. Even a KGB agent, Victor Cherkashin, is surprised. I left my dacha as usual to drive towards the highway which would take me northeast to Moscow. Moving through the thoroughfare, I was surprised to see tank after tank. Whoever ordered that is an idiot, I thought. They were chewing up asphalt and the street would need to be repaved. A 92-year-old on the Moscow street, was shocked 
when she saw a reporter handing out leaflets. This is my fifth coup, she said, said a woman interviewed in the book Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. We were smoking like chimneys on August the 19th. We put a towel on our phone in our apartment. We thought it was tapped, and we would be done for. New York Times, across this bedraggled city, people struggled through the day trying to figure out what had happened to them overnight. They'd awakened to find their president mysteriously gone, a new state committee for the state of emergency and control, and military vehicles roaming the city. Doused by heavy rains, many Muscovites knew no more than they did when they listened to their first terse bulletins on the state-controlled television and radio. And there's a Times reporter on the streets of Moscow this day and uh, is covering and gets quotes from Soviet citizens like this. All I know is, nothing good can come from tanks. We woke up to the noise of tanks on the streets. Beyond that, I still don't know anything concretely. Where is Gorbachev? Where is Yeltsin? It's a terrible situation. It happened in 1917 when the Bolsheviks took over. In 1937, my uncle and my father were shot, and my mother arrested. Now it is happening again, but people can't imagine it. We are a very unhappy nation. They've closed down the papers, but that's not so important. The radio, that's what hurts. Without the radio, no one knows what's going on. Not everybody was so negative. They interview a chauffeur, Mikhail Argutinsky, who says, We can't figure it out, but somebody had to bring things back into order. And his wife tells the Times reporter, she's not sorry to see Gorbachev gone. Of course, he's not the only one to blame. But all I know is, before him, we lived better. Mikhail, I hope you are all right, President George H.W. Bush says. I wish you safety. We hope we will be working together again. But he cannot really say these words to Gorbachev. He cannot connect with them. He cannot get anywhere with any channels. He's trying. The President of the United States, I wish to speak to Gorbachev. He cannot. He writes these words in his diary. Here's some of the statement that's released to the world from the State Emergency Committee. Compatriots, citizens of the Soviet Union, we are addressing you at the grave critical hour for the destinies of the motherland and our peoples. A mortal danger has come to loom large over our great motherland. The policy of reforms launched by Gorbachev has entered for several reasons a blind alley. Lack of faith, apathy, and despair have replaced the original enthusiasm and hopes. Authorities at all levels have lost the population's trust. Politicking has replaced public life concern for the fate of the motherland and the citizens. It is high time people were told the truth. If urgent and decisive measures were not adapted to stabilize the economy, hunger and another spiral of impoverishment are imminent in the near future. We intend to restore law and order straight away and bloodshed. Declare war without mercy Declare to the criminal world. Declare war without mercy. Declare war without But they do say, we promise to hold a nationwide discussion of the draft new union treaty. Each individual will have the right and opportunity to think over this major act and define his attitude towards it. Because the fate of numerous peoples of our great motherland will depend on what the Soviet Union will be like. At the Moscow news offices, Igor Yakovlev, he's out at the editorial offices outside Pushkin Square, the heart of Moscow, and his paper has been shut down. He'll say, let's get leaflets out if they break down our printing press. Get the photocopiers on full steam. Here's how the New York Times describes Yakovlev, a member of the 60s generation that grew to maturity in the Soviet Union in the years after Nikita Khrushchev's secret speech to the 20th Party Congress in 1956, which denounced Stalin's rule. These Communist Party reformers were critical of the party, but believed in socialism with a human face. The best of perestroika was made by them. But delusion with Gorbachev's politics for Igor Yakovlev comes when Soviet tanks rolled into Lithuania to suppress pro-independence demonstrations. The Moscow News has a headline that calls it a criminal act. Yakovlev also resigns from the Communist Party, and in 1991, several people are doing that. In a country that only has one party, this step is significant. 
At a certain point, Yakovla picks up the Vertushka. This is a phone that goes one way for announcements from the Kremlin and other places to come to the newspaper. And he hears a voice. He doesn't know who it is. You tried to do me in, you SOB. Now listen to your radio. We're going to do you in. A lot of people would be scared by that. And when he tells other Democrats about it and other journalists about it, they are scared about what's going to happen to them this day. But not Yekovlov. He's been through World War II. He's fought Nazis. He's had to deal with the Soviet brass, which in many cases were even worse. He's been fired from numerous editorial positions. He's always written books about the wrong thing. He's energized. One journalist activist says something strange happens on the morning of the 19th. Neighbors in her apartment complex, who she had never met before, who just she just knew enough to nod in a hallway or in a common area, perhaps, now ring the doorbell like they were fast friends. You can stay in my apartment if you need to. We will hide you as long as you need. How did they know who she was and of her activism? No, it was very generous. She knew it came from salt of the earth, from heart of hearts, but how did everyone know? Indeed, among the 299 million Soviets, opinions were probably divided on this. People spent their lives listening to propaganda and thus may have been the center of the world's expertise in how to understand and interpret it. You learn to listen. You learn to hear in the clues, to read the radio, some might say, like applied here. Okay, Gorbachev is ill. Why not any mention of the specific illness? Why no indication of where he is? He's so ill, he really can't speak. Is he on a ventilator? Does he have the flu? It depended how people approached propaganda. They all had different strategies. Some people would say, believe nothing you hear. Others would say, kind of cut the fat off with a knife. If something seems exaggerated in the propaganda, that's the part that's untrue. Joseph Weisberg, the creator of the Americans TV show and the author of the book Russia Upside Down, discovered that while researching his show that many of the stereotypes about Russians that were in American movies were just simply not true. We thought they were all zombies, Weisberg said. Nah, they had an ear for propaganda. They knew what was going on. Don't generalize, warns the book. Coping with Russia, an 80s travel guide for Americans who are going to the Soviet Union as tourists. Don't generalize about Russians. We'll follow that book's advice in this series as best we can. However, your coping strategies for dealing with propaganda where the government didn't exactly freely communicate, this was a shocking day. At Manesh Square, there were people. This is where protesters would normally go. But just a few hundred, not more than 500, go. They seemed lost, too. A man in a loudspeaker was shouting, Don't come here. It will be a provocation. He claimed to be with Yeltsin, speaking for Yeltsin. Yeltsin doesn't want this, he said. No one could figure out who the person's authority was coming from. Tanks were coming into the square, surrounding it, actually, to try to fence people in, maybe force people out. A man yells at the megaphone man to be quiet. You are not a leader. University professor Greg Frieden rushes over to the Russian White House. He thinks, surely there must be activity here. Protests, it's about 10 a.m. This is where President Yeltsin operates from, he thinks. The white marble gem. Not at least at 10 or 10.30, he sees that it's empty and eerie quiet like the government building normally would be in Soviet days. But he did see half a dozen tanks with helmeted tank men looking like the perfect poster of the Soviet army. It's an elite division, the heaviest tanks, the crews, sullen and duty-bound, and their turrets and barrels, while not pointed at the Russian White House, are very close to it. Where are the people, he asks. Prominent Gorbachev critic predicts the coup will stick. Everyone in the motherland will support it, outside of those cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. There was a different type of crowd that appeared on a Moscow street in January 1990. Huge lines filled Pushkin Square, just a few blocks from the Kremlin. Neatly queued, organized, the way... Russians do. 
with barricades to help enforce, of course, as well as Soviet military with their red hats. The contrast was something for American TV. This burly Russian guard with his hat next to the symbol of capitalism, McDonald's, and Ronald McDonald's face. A lot of people wanted in. Fortunately, this McDonald's was large. It had 700 seats, which made it instantly on opening the largest McDonald's in the world at this time. 16-year-old Nadia Vanova, one of scores of workers wearing little red and yellow uniforms, the same that their worldwide McDonald's co-workers would wear, listens intently as a customer orders a Big Mac, cartoffel fries, and an ice cream motel, or milkshake. After punching the order into one of 29 computerized cash registers, Vanova nods and says, Thank you. Please come again. For those schooled in the art of Soviet retail service, thank you, please come again, is unusual, to say the least. We take that for granted. Yet even in this, Vanova has made a mistake. Assistant manager Sergei Skvortsov, who is 25, shakes his head unhappily and says, Niet, try again. You must look each customer in the eye. You must look each customer in the eye and smile. This McDonald's comes not from America, actually, but from Canada. It was a joint venture of the Canadian subsidiary of McDonald's and the Moscow City Council. The $50 million project took years, and it fell through several times before it was finally signed in April 1988. It's the first major brand since Pepsi in the 1970s started selling product here. The biggest problem, George Cohen, the president of McDonald's Canada, said, has been dealing with the Soviet ministries, which still adhere to rigid regulations in doling out precious supplies. When we need more sand or gravel for the building, they say, sorry, you're not in my five-year plan. The Moscow managers have imported potatoes and cucumber seeds from the Netherlands and have trained Soviet farmers to harvest and pack the produce without bruising it. They have taught Soviet cattle farmers that they can raise leaner beef by slaughtering the cattle a month earlier. With the Big Mac, kartoffel fries, and a cocktail, priced at about 5.5 rubles or twice the cost of a meal in a state-run cafeteria, McDonald's must pitch its fare to higher-income patrons. As the American newsman reported, the first Russian McDonald's customers had seen the future, and it works at least as far as their digestive tract goes. So goes the article in the New York Times about this event. Um, a s- former Soviet citizen, Misha Fehrer, writing on Quora, wrote, My Aunt Natalia, an architect, tried the taste of a forbidden Big Mac on the opening day, not just for burgers. We had that. But for the democratic experience of going to McDonald's, being treated like a human, being a customer, she brought a cardboard cup home, and her family used it until the cup turned into pulp. She stood in line for three and a half hours, but it was worth it. I don't know if people were eating burgers on August 19, 1991, but I actually have to assume that they were, and I assume the store was busy. There was probably a line because everything else was open. The ice cream shops would never shut down this week of August. The emergency committee wanted it that way. They wanted life to continue. In fact, it would later be revealed that in addition to that shipment of emergency handcuffs for restraining people that I mentioned, shipments of bread would also be coming from Ukraine SSR, maybe not as quickly as it should have, so that they could stock the shelves and show people the emergency committee was working. Victor Shanice deputy of the Russian Supreme Soviet, starts thinking this is like Prague in 1968. But it's not a foreign story. It's here. The greatest worries had to do with our historical experience, especially the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 and Poland in 1981. I knew what happened very well. Something else very odd is happening. 
There is, of all things, a computer show going on in Moscow, and a group of young people from one of the local institutes has set up something completely new in the past few months. A network of computer communication. This is 1991, so even in America, people wouldn't know how to describe this for the most part unless they're like computer science majors. But it is what we now know as an internet. They have communication, they realize, with universities, and they start sending out messages. We've seen tanks with our own eyes out our window from the Institute. I hope we will be able to communicate. Communists cannot rape Mother Russia again. The Saitka, the network, was down the morning of the 19th, but they're able to get it back up and working. They post news from Radio Echo Moscow, which had been jammed. Already they're experiencing an annoyance that we'll see on the internet today. Just a lot of traffic and what you might say spam. People just posting messages. I feel so sorry for you. They sent out a note. Please clear this channel, this Usenet channel for communications between people with real information. Early reports of what is being seen in Moscow go out to universities across the Soviet Union who are connected to this RELCOM network, but also to some in the West. Perhaps it's never a good idea to go to your dacha in the warm Black Sea before a major change in the country is about to take place. But for Mikhail Gorbachev, that was a big speech he was about to make. A new treaty between the Soviet central government and the SSRs, the states, to put it in American parlance, or really the the republics. He wanted to prepare in the best way to make a speech that wouldn't seem weak, that wouldn't seem too strong, that would have the liberals liking him, that would have the hardliners respecting him, that would have the republics on board. Battling with Yeltsin, battling with hardliners, playing a dance, appointing a hardliner here, a Democrat there, rotating between the two sides, recently much more in the hardliner category, appointing generals to various Soviet offices, and he needed a few days away. What better than the president's dacha, this actually, this enormous Crimean resort recently built. Gorbachev now wanted to cut a deal with the three main republics. Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. Even though there are many other republics in the Soviet Union, those three had the largest Russian-speaking population, tended to be the more powerful. With those on board, he'd have a new union treaty. But there was a catch. The republics were insisting on several things, and one of them is that they didn't want secret police operating in their territories. The KGB, for instance, would become investigative only at the direction of the republic governments. Not only that, there would be specific firings. It would be determined later that although it's a bit of a Soviet no-no to record the general secretary of the party, Khrushchev had ordered that exact thing done and had the conversation between Gorbachev and the republic presidents documented. His own firing was part of those discussions. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time. 
from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. While he's preparing for his speech, he receives um, word from his personal guard, about 30 people that are signed to protect the Soviet president. And the leader of the guard says, there are visitors for you, Mr. President. Gorbachev says... I'm the president of the Soviet Union. I don't have any visitors. No one. I didn't invite anyone. I didn't call for anyone. You must see them, sir. Why? Because they are my boss. The, de- the, the head of the detail says. This does not seem right, Gorbachev says. I did not provide any such instructions. And he goes to pick up the phone. There is no dial tone. What did Gorbachev want to do here? He wanted to save the Soviet Union. He was someone who had been to Canada. He'd been to Czechoslovakia after the 1969 crackdown. He had talked to people. He had talked to people in villages, found the Soviet story about the crackdown didn't line up with the reality on the ground. There was no U.S. involvement in Prague summer. It was started by the local party. Czechoslovakians wanted a socialism, but a freer one, and it was crushed. Gorbachev had been, in Khrushchev's years, the person assigned in his local area, Ostrovaspol, to read Khrushchev's speech condemning Stalin, to tell people the truth about what had happened. Khrushchev had only released it in a secret speech to party members, to be spread around the land with party functionaries like Gorbachev acting as local priests, spreading the message. He meets with the two visitors. What else can he do? Who sent you, he says. The emergency committee. I did not authorize that. They presented Gorbachev with a document for him to sign, not resigning, but temporarily handing over power to the emergency committee. Absolutely not, he says. This is illegal, and you and the adventurers who sent you will be prosecuted. Now, here I must say, when I first considered doing this episode years ago, yes, this, this Soviet podcast is one that I've had in a legal pad in a, in a box for quite a long time. I This was the end. Gorbachev's account is the end of the story about Gorbachev and his actions on this day and the next few days, and it still might be. But now I must say there are some questions about Gorbachev's real role. But in any case, he didn't appear to be either free to act or willing to do so. That much seems to be the most probable case. The events in Moscow got all the coverage and the telling of the story, but in Leningrad, in St. Petersburg, recently renamed, there's a large rally that forms. And the first three members of the Leningrad City Council arrive at the Marlinsky government palace just after seven in the morning. People are already there asking the city councilors, what does this mean? Is perestroika over? Is democracy over? They decide, okay, we'll convene a session with all of this going on, but they had no quorum. A deputy chairman of the St. Petersburg Council, Ernest, but inexperienced in running meetings, bangs the gavel and calls the meetings to order. He recognizes the most insistent person to speak. That is a council member, Rear Admiral Victor Karmstoff. And he starts talking. We need to support this emergency committee. We need to change our actions to coordinate with this emergency committee. Perestroika has... But as Karmstoff is talking, it's pretty clear. He's not an elected Leningrad City Council member. He's appointed representative of the emergency committee to that council. So one of the others, Vitaly Skoibeda, an elected council member and a Democrat known for his attitude, gets up, walks over and shouts in Karmstoff's face that he's a traitor and he should be arrested. And then he punches him in the nose. 
It is good fortune that at this moment, the actual chairman of the St. Petersburg City Council comes in, Alexander Belayev. He approaches the rear admiral, who is now wiping his face, and asks him, okay, are we actually under a state of military emergency in this city, admiral? Procedure still matters on a Monday morning. It's still the USSR. No, you are not, the admiral says. Karmstoff is here for all the coordination and propaganda purposes, but he's not here with an army. Fine, then, the chairman says. He calls the meeting officially to order, and the first order of business the St. Petersburg Council takes up is declaring the emergency committee an illegal coup. Boris Yeltsin, the elected president of Russia, is at his dacha outside Moscow. A KGB elite force has surrounded it, but has not moved in. The commander of the group may have been ordered to detain him, varying accounts. So a unit watched as Yeltsin got news of the coup. His wife and daughter made arrangements for various democratic leaders to come see him quickly. The mayor of St. Petersburg visits him. While this is going on, Yeltsin's small security unit do see people surrounding the compound. Obviously KGB, watching them. A KGB unit had gone to his city apartment, but if they really were the jewel of intelligence, they would know that in August, right after a weekend, they would not find the president of Russia inside his city apartment. The former Ural Mountain party boss, turned Western-style Democrat, Boris Yeltsin, received his dacha through his service to the Communist Party and the Soviet Union. That is how dachas are signed, and he loved it. He spent his non-working time there. His wife insisted on it, as he needed to reduce his blood pressure. To the forest, to the cold air, and that's where he was today. The Russian president was an odd person. But this behavior was not strange. Russians, it could be said, are outdoor people. Though the country was urbanizing, became more urban, 60% of the USSR lived in cities. The truth was, there was a need to go outdoors that prevailed. No government housing plan could break the spirit, the love of cool, the love of Arctic temperatures, the love of that cold breeze, the feeling, the desire to run freely shirtless in Gorky Park in the dead of winter, or to take a train scores of miles from one's home city just to sit in the woods and breathe in the country air. Though taken to extremes to Western ears, you know, I don't know in an instance if anyone could explain to those in the West the attraction of mushroom hunting that would drive Russians to buy up tickets on buses that went out into countryside pastures, all to sit in those freezing cold seats, shivering overnight, because you had to get up early from that first moment of daylight to see the best mushrooms and collect them before others did. Indeed, this outdoor zeal propelled one-fourth of the Moscow families to procure or be assigned, through the great blessing of the Soviet people, a lovely cottage. Some of them were metal sheds. Yeltsin wasn't hunting mushrooms. The brazen reformer turned folk hero to Democrats, wasted no time in realizing what was going on, and if he didn't, his wife and politically savvy daughter did. He didn't exactly like Gorbachev. They've been battling since Gorbachev brought him to Moscow from the Ural Mountains. Gorbachev needed Yeltsin, but he didn't expect him to take the public opinion baths to be a crowd bather and start such trouble. Yeltsin didn't like Gorby much either. He was publishing bad stories about him in the foreign and domestic press. Nonetheless, today he knows he needs to deal with the Gorbachev situation and to resist this announced emergency committee. Meanwhile, in Foros, Gorbachev knows something hostile to his interest is going on. He's gathered his family, saying, no matter what happens, I will not cooperate. At best, it's an attempt to stall the new treaty of the Soviet Union with some type of confusion. At worst, well, Gorbachev was young, but aware of Beria, who was supposed to succeed Stalin, the head of his secret police. A mock trial, a declaration that he was a British agent, and a quick gun to his head. Khrushchev took over. He was then removed and exiled. Now, Khrushchev was not killed. It was, as many described it, Russia's vegetarian years. People weren't killed like that anymore. 
but nothing was impossible from his side of the story. But who knows? As he's thinking these thoughts, people have no idea where he is. In many an underground leaflet handed out in Moscow or St. Petersburg, the word is spread. Gorbachev is already dead. But you also have to consider this. Opinions about Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev differed on these Moscow streets. I almost felt sorry for Gorbachev, said one Moscow activist who had had problems with his current administration. But he has put this on himself. Nothing good would ever come from that Don Cossack. So a Russian indicated her mother's opinion of Mikhail Gorbachev to the author of the book, Soviet Baby Boomers. Here in the U.S., Gorbachev was immensely popular. In Russia, the joke is there's many statues of him in Germany. Faceless party bureaucrat who made his career in the provinces and inspired false expectations. That's how British journalist David Sater described Gorbachev. A 2017 poll found that Stalin was more popular among Russians. He gave up Eastern Europe, is what many would say. His 2022 death was celebrated in the United States. In Russia, not so much. Putin said he would be too busy for the funeral. And if it was only him, we could ascribe it to him, but that opinion is widely presented. One Russian on Quora, well after Gorbachev's death, explained to Americans why he's unpopular there, but popular in the West. Well, if you burn down your own family's house, and you give me your family's jewels, yeah, my family's going to love you. I might even like you, but I'm not going to respect you. Just because the Soviet Union was a country where people were forced to have one party didn't mean they had to like it. Well, under a very strict Stalinist regime in the early days, you did. But really, as of the 1960s, leaders' personalities were fair game. In street talk, in the kitchen table, even little flyers, little fake satirical Communist Party memos that would be as funny as any of the pages of The Onion. Gorbachev's War on Vodka was particularly annoying to people. See, most Americans don't know this. Gorbachev was a prohibitionist. I ain't all but. He made it very difficult in his early policy to purchase vodka. Lines became longer. Taxes and costs became increased. There were people that died drinking various chemicals, and it probably caused more crime. It certainly caused more annoyance and made him look like a preachy moralist. Barely heard about in the U.S. Maybe today... He was getting a little boost in his approval rating as people felt sorry for what had happened. It didn't seem his fault. Even that now is questioned a little. We'll get into that. But we do know this. On the day we're speaking, Gorbachev's actions aren't all in his own hand. After summoning all the Democratic talent in the country, all of the people who, like he, had thrown away their Communist Party cards and now are increasingly Democrats within various organs of Russian and Soviet government. After attempting to get a hold of someone from the State Emergency Committee to talk to, Yeltsin's team makes the decision that they can do more good in Moscow and also it's not safe here. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeltsin is not a dissident. He's not in hiding. He's a elected president of the largest part of the Soviet Union. Before that, he had been a party bureaucrat and a darn good one. Gorbachev specifically picked him to root out corruption that had occurred in the city of Moscow with many citizen complaints, particularly about the vegetable market. When Yeltsin got his hands on it, everything was fixed. But there was great criticism from the apparitchniks in power. And Gorbachev did, as Gorbachev was wont to do, blamed it on his subordinate, and his subordinate took the fall. Yeltsin was disgraced, and if this had been 1975, Yeltsin's career easily would have been over. But that wasn't the situation on the ground, and that wasn't the personality of this particular character. (laughs) It's after the bloody events in Lithuania earlier this year, which Yeltsin had predicted, many Democrats had predicted, after Lithuania Leaders of the Lithuanian government try to get a hold of Gorbachev, and they're told that he's sleeping and cannot be roused. Terrible mixture of incompetency and also violence in creeping dictatorship. This coming on the heels of the prediction from his own foreign minister and others, his friend Alexander Yakolov. No confusion with Igor. Now, Lithuania wins him fans among the people who'll be elected to the presidency of Russia this same year. He's really only Russian president for two months when this happens, and that's the way to see these events. But nonetheless, he's been elected. Not many people in the USSR can claim that right now. There's a few. There's an elected mayor of St. Petersburg, an ally of of Yeltsin we'll talk about. You know, there's a few. There's an elected mayor of Moscow, also an ally. But most people are there by appointment from one collective body or another. So all of this is to say, Yeltsin's not here to hide. He wants to take action. He wants to be part of this. He wants to demand in a more public place where Gorbachev is. The aides make the call. It's time to go. And as we described earlier, Yeltsin has no interest in his bulletproof vest, gets into the car, demands that it take off. All the security guards can do is form a human bulletproof vest around him. And as we referenced, they drive past the guards. They know they're KGB. It's not only KGB. The KGB at this point is so powerful, it has military units, has armed units. That's just simply a few guys with pistols, as you might like expect G-men from the FBI or something like that. There are dedicated military units among the 700,000 people working for the KGB. You know, with hindsight, it'll come out that apparently... They didn't move in because they didn't have orders to move in, or somebody disobeyed orders, or the orders were vague. All of these stories will be thrown about. But here's a question. Why were all these people surrounding Yeltsin? It seems that at least there was some intent to at least detain him, or to set that up. And as we described, there's this small road going through the woods from where the dachas are to the main highway leading to Moscow. And all along that trip, Yeltsin's head of security is thinking they could come out at any moment from the woods, stop this car, and who knows what could happen. Soviet history is replete with all sorts of things, but an arrest was certainly not out of the question. At best, they were there to be ready, and then an order never came. But you have to consider one squawk of the walkie-talkie, and the whole history is shut down. And there's some reports that this is decisive. 
They take that route. They get to the highway. They get to Moscow. He wants to go to the Kremlin. They're not able to communicate with anyone to set that up. No one wants to talk to Yeltsin at this point yet. So they go to his place of business, the huge white marble building, the Russian White House. Ceremonial building in many ways in Soviet history. It's not the place where a lot of government running was being done because it was mostly a rubber stamp for the USSR government, Russia SSR. Now this building has authority. It's his place of work and it's where he wants to be. There are some reports that just as they're doing this, the KGB guard moves in on the dacha and confronts the remaining security folks there. There's discussions. They even have a meal. Maybe this will delay them a bit. But uh, a lot of what seems benign on August 19th comes from people who are telling accounts when they've lost their power. So what was really going on? Nonetheless, the Zhiguli zips out with its cargo, bodies piled on, fly on the wall for that one, hits the highway to Moscow and to history. The democratically elected president of Russia was soon striding out of the building to address a crowd of supporters. St. Petersburg can't find out what's happening in Moscow. Russia radio and TV, which reaches many cities, now off the air. But the emergency committee also takes pains to appear to adhere to the Soviet constitution and follow succession procedures developed two years before by installing the vice president as the head of the committee. Yeltsin had signed two declarations by this time. He declared the actions of the committee to be illegal and unconstitutional, and now says Russian authorities may only obey legal orders. He demanded that Gorbachev be allowed to address the nation. His decree number 59 said the emergency committee orders have no force on Russian territory soil, and that a press conference would be announced for 11 a.m. For whom? The Russian TV and radio was off the air. East forces, paratroopers, all fleets, all army groups are upgraded to high alert in the St. Petersburg area. Tank divisions, they fear, are arriving from Belarus to St. Petersburg and Moscow. Simultaneous to these events, but unknown to these people, Prime Minister Pavlov, one of the emergency committee members, has a severe headache. I took my pills. But they brought us caffeine and alcohol during our meetings today. The debates and discussions we were having was very sharp. I wanted no bloodshed. As I was saying words, I felt everything around me getting blurry, and I felt my legs fall. Next thing you know, I was moved to a sofa. They said they had found me in the restroom. A different type of effect in St. Petersburg. Valery Zavrodny expected to leave his house and be greeted by police units. He was a known activist, but nothing. There are about a hundred people with tricolor flags in the town square, one hell sign that said no to red fascism. And I, he says he saw a few Amran officers. These guys had done the actions in Lithuania to put things down, but here there were few, and at least now they were doing nothing. I asked an officer, what's going on here? He would not answer for me. I didn't think he would. For a day of coup, though, something amiss is here, I remember thinking. The crowd got bigger and bigger. In Saratov, a closed city, Soviet Union featured many cities where you could not freely leave or go in. There was a Chapel Hill professor, Donald Riley, who was working on a novel about the Russian Revolution. To be in a closed city, he gets a knock on the door each day and has to register with the KGB. He thinks this time they will throw him out. He was here as part of an exchange in the USSR with an author who wanted to go to America. He gets the same message on the radio that everyone else does, that cheerless, calm voice over and over again. The president is ill. Perestroika has failed. Measures would be enforced for six months. Crazy. But though it was a little late today, that knock on the door arrives, and he is registered. In Ukraine, the chairman of the Ukraine parliament is asked to institute martial law today. No, that won't be necessary, he says. Leonid Krawchuk doesn't say no, he doesn't declare the coup illegal, but Krawchuk had switched from supporting moderation and survival of the Soviet Union to starting to lean towards many of the people in his SSR who were urging for Ukrainian independence. Was he a great Democrat? No, no. But those with ears hear and those with eyes see, he was a politician and no dummy. And his step 
although a passive one will not be inconsequential. There are 7,000 troops in Ukraine. The emergency committee wants them for use in Moscow. The leader of Soviet military in Ukraine abides by the instruction of the civilian authorities and goes to Moscow alone. Instead of 7,000 troops, they get one general and a hat. The Armenian prime minister plays things right down the middle. Armenia has no skin in the game, he says. Who will settle the border conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan? That will get us support. State bodies in Armenia should, for the time being, refrain from any particular point of view. We should note that Yeltsin was the president of giant Russia, but nonetheless, it's so big that one man cannot represent its all of its opinion. The oblast, the administrative units of Samara, Tambov, Saratov, Orenburg, they are coming out in support of the emergency committee. Yeltsin be damned. Victoria Brunel, a visiting professor, wondered if Moscow people would really mobilize. Sure, at Red Square there were people. The White House, there was Yeltsin. But at our in-laws in a neighborhood not far away in Moscow, there was nothing going on at all. The line at the ice cream store never wavered. Brunel says, my daughter asked if we would be taken to prison. No, they would not do that to foreigners, she said. What about a Russian babushka, her grandmother? No, no, I told her. They haven't done anything. Gregory Frieden, professor of Russian language from Harvard, remarked that as of Monday morning, there was no way to see how any power could challenge this, the omnipotent state. A metal worker in the Varens region, south of Moscow, said, Tanks in Moscow. <laughs> in our village, there was no one particularly worried about it. Everyone was much more concerned with potato beetles and cabbage moths. Those beetles are hard to get rid of. There are requests to the Supreme Soviet. After all, they should be getting involved. If there's some crisis in the USSR, it's the, it's the Supreme Soviet. And if the Supreme Soviet, however, the head of it, Anatoly Lukyanov, the speaker, someone who knew Gorbachev back to university days, say he will not consider a meeting right now, not during the trouble, at least until August 26th. It's August 19th. That's many days that allows the emergency committee to function without what in effect, and it's a simplification, but for American understanding purposes, is our combo of Congress and Supreme Court. They're the ones that should be making a call of legitimacy. Lukyanov decides we'll just make no decision until the 26th. There are many in the Soviet that want a meeting. They won't get it today. There are all kinds of news spreading across the streets now in Moscow. Photocopiers, faxes, phone lines. People are calling each other. The phone lines have never been shut down. What is Gorbachev's fate? And this is not good. A tank crewman is pulled out of a tank and manhandled by a crowd. No, no, this is not what they want. The crewman has a look of terror on his face. Could mob violence result? These are the things the Soviet authorities might use. A backlash, a provocation that will justify more violence. Yeltsin, ensconced in Moscow, hears that outside the Russian White House is the Russian film crew and CNN and a few photographers there for the press conference he announced at 11 a.m. But there's a problem. Tanks have now surrounded the building. When Yeltsin's people ask what the tanks are there for, the commander says they're there for his protection. His protection? He didn't ask for it. <laughs> it is now where Mikhail Arutunov, who's a scientist who developed an interest in human rights in the 1980s and was a key Yeltsin supporter, says, I was near Yeltsin in the White House that morning. And he said, there are tanks there. Let's go meet the tanks. Meet the tanks isn't something that those with long history watching World War II movies would want to do. It's not something that knows what happened in Budapest in 56 or in... Czechoslovakia in 68, or even Lithuania in 1991, would want to do go meet the tanks. Something extraordinary happens here. Yeltsin goes out, faces the tank commander. You have to understand something about Yeltsin. When he was in charge of the factories in the Ural Mountains, he had built tanks, and he knew a lot about them. For instance, he knew there's a certain way that soldiers would mount them. And so, he climbs up onto one of the tanks. 
He was not afraid. Now the photograph is famous, and a motley group of bodyguards, politicians, and Yeltsin, and he makes a speech. He repeats his decrees. They have no authority. He demands to see Gorbachev. What's not known, maybe, about this tank moment is that there are maybe a hundred people there, and the Russian White House is huge. It, it dwarfs the amount of people there. If one were to take a bit of a step back from where you see most of those photos of Yeltsin on the tank, like when the camera pans on an empty stadium or empty uh, <laughs> hall of Congress, you know, if that's what it's going to look like in this moment. There are plenty of tanks around him nearby, too. He might be on one of them. The tank commander next to him looks down so as not to be caught in the photos, but he made no effort to stop Yeltsin. Yeltsin says, apparently they aren't going to shoot the Russian president yet. He's right. Near as anybody can find, there was no order to do so, on August 19th anyway. But it's early. And because hindsight is twenty twenty, it's important to state this. By the time most people arrive to work, arrive to work on August 19th, Central Soviet TV is all stitched up. No official communications can be made by anybody but the committee. The KGB is well-informed, working full-time. East forces, paratroopers, all fleets, all army groups are upgraded to battle ready. The defense minister is part of the emergency committee. Russian Communist Party committees, they've all been telegrammed the night before. About 70% of those Russia Communist Party committees disagree with their elected president and agree with the emergency leaders. Here's another thing. By the time you get later in the day, a people's deputy outspoken, and a Russian people's deputy arrested. Russian state TV is taken off the air, as we said. Moscow, Echo Radio, very popular source of news is off the air. They don't shut down, but they are jammed. By the time Yeltsin mounts that tank, the nuclear suitcase, which can launch missiles, is in the hand of the vice president, removed from Gorbachev. The airspace over the president of the Soviet Union is off limits, unless we forget Gorbachev is a prisoner in his resort, and Yeltsin is now going to become all but a prisoner in his own Russian White House building. Of the tank episode, Martin Sixsmith of the BBC says, It was an inspired piece of whistling in the dark, really. It would come down immediate effects, but Yeltsin had no facts to back up all of his optimism. Yet something starts happening. One thing is that, and maybe it doesn't change the world right here, but but a poet crafts a poem. And in a country where literature was often censured, oral poetry is such a tradition. And he, it gets around Moscow streets and leaflets and on the BBC. This August day shall be glorified in songs and ballads. Today we are a nation, no longer fools, happy to be fooled. Conscience wakens even in the tanks. Yeltsin rises on a turret. Yeltsin rises on a turret. This is episode one. 